Hello, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Trademark Now podcast, Talking Marks, where we discuss the wonderful and sometimes weird world of trademarks. Allow me to introduce myself. I'm Zach Cass Stevens, a trademark executive with Trademark Now. I co-present Talking Marks with my colleague, Gochen Uzer Chingalja. Hi, I'm Gokcha, Trademark Counsel at Trademark Now. You're very welcome to Talking Marks. Just to introduce myself now to you all, um, I've worked as a trademark attorney for a little over 12 years and I have experience in trademark persecution and portfolio strategies. I provide trademark law expertise for AI model development at Trademark Now. I'd just like to say that no opinions that are expressed in this podcast are to be considered legal opinions, nor do they directly reflect the opinions of Trademark Now. What we hope to achieve from this podcast is a casual but informative discussion on trademarks to discuss a variety of subjects in the trademark world, covering currently trending trademark cases, historically famous cases, funny and unusual cases, and general trademark and trademark law related topics. Gochen and I are huge trademark aficionados, and we hope that you enjoy listening to our conversations. Mindful of the fact that many of us are now working remotely due to the current crisis, we hope that our podcast can also help you stay in touch with the trademark community. We are always looking for guests to come on the show, so if you have something to say, please do get in touch. We share our contact details at the end of each episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Talkin' Marks. I'm your host, Zach. Always with me here is Gochen. Say hi, Gochen. Hi, everyone. Um, I do want to uh, preface this particular episode with a disclaimer. This episode will contain foul and vulgar language. Uh, so, you know, listener discretion is advised. Any young ears that might be in the room should probably not listen. And if you are in work, perhaps uh, you may go ahead and put on those headphones. Uh, the topic today is considered by many in the trademark world to be somewhat thorny. In this episode, we're going to cover the issue of immoral and scandalous trademarks. Uh, what uh, what are they today, and what does the future hold for these kinds of marks tomorrow? We also have a guest with us, and I have the great pleasure of introducing our special guest, Mr. Colin Manning. Colin is a lecturer at Cork Institute of Technology and a practicing EU trademark attorney. Hi, Zach. Hi, Gochen. Thanks for having me. Colin is also uh, the author of an insightful thesis on moral bars on trademark registration, why, which I recently enjoyed reading. And his thesis covers the arguments for and against moral bars on trademark registration before the European Union Intellectual Property Office, along with other registries. So, Colin, like, you know, trade between countries creates the development of international regulations in commerce, including IP. How are those immoral trademarks regulated on an international level? Is there any universal method to determine those trademarks? Well, the initial bar on the registration of immoral trademarks goes all the way back to the Paris Convention for the Protection of Industrial Property. So that was an important harmonizing effort that dates back to 1883. So there's an article in that um, treaty, Article 6, Kankai's B, that said this treaty allowed signatory states to refuse to register a trademark if it was contrary to moral or public order. Now, this was an optional provision. But as signatory states modified their laws so that they would meet their obligations under the treaty, 
Lots of them adopted this provision into their national laws. Do you think we need these kinds of public order related trademark regulations? Uh, I mean, if a trademark is against public order or morality, surely it will not uh, be able to achieve commercial success and will eventually die. Yeah, that logic is very enticing. You know, it's, it's tempting to think that the marketplace can regulate away offensive marks. And, and certainly if a mark is really offensive, it might not do well. But I think that's a bit of a fallacy. It kind of goes without saying that a trader is not going to market goods or services in a way that's offensive to the target market. So, I mean, the bar on offensive marks is for situations where the mark is maybe offensive to some, but not all. Um, if the trademark was offensive to everybody, then, you know, the market would indeed take care of that. Yeah, like, uh, as you said, the scope is like the first country to country, even though many countries use uh, this Paris Convention language, contrary to morality and public order. But when it when it comes to the need of those regulations, I have read an article on this. It was written by Gibbons and Joseph Liberty and or relationlessness, disparaging and scandalous marks post-Tem and Brunetti. And, and in that article, they were referencing the social science literature further, which suggests that those, those kind of immoral terms actually cause psychological and social harm, actually. And they gave an example from American Psychological Association resolution. On the other hand, like as we will be speaking a little bit later, uh, public policy and and the accepted good morality seems, uh, the distinction seems quite important. As you know, the government should not have the right or the ability to decide which kinds of speech are good or which kind of speech are bad, like as a reference in Goethe decision, as we will explore more. So regarding the other edge of the topic, the freedom of expression, Although the European legal system does not provide same level of protection as the First Amendment of U.S. Constitution, uh, the European Court of Human Rights has this Article 10, which protects also the commercial expressions. Still, as referred in the comparative studies, this provides more space to member states, a wider margin of appreciation with regard to that issue. So, Colin... Um, what, what is your thoughts about this conflict between freedom of expression and also vices, this immoral trademarks? That's the challenge, really. There's the balance between the freedom of expression and then the possibility that some marks could do people harm. Um, the freedom of expression argument, though, is kind of an ironic one in this context because it's sometimes people mistakenly think of a trademark registration as giving them the right to use the trademark. But of course, it's the right to stop everyone else from using it. So it's it's tough sometimes to wave the freedom of expression banner when you're trying to stop other people from saying something. And it's important to remember as well that if a trademark isn't registered, then no speech is actually prohibited. So you can still use an unregistered trademark for your products. But of course, the state won't come to your assistance um, should you run into difficulty. Um, and let's talk about that. Let's talk about the just from a U.S. perspective. Um, Colin, can you briefly uh, explain the precedent disputes from the United States? Yeah, so I guess there are three um, celebrated cases um, or scenarios in the U.S. So we have the Redskins case, and we have the Slants, and there's um, Lanku v. Brunetti. So um, 
An American-Asian rock band called The Slants tried to register their name as a trademark, and the, U, um, the USPTO refused to register that. So they went to court, and this eventually came to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found that um, the refusal to register the trademark was an infringement of the band's um, free speech. Okay, so um, in parallel with this was perhaps a more celebrated case, which was that of the Redskins. So the Washington Redskins are an American football team in the US. It's interesting, however, that um, subsequently the Washington Redskins have decided to change their name. Um, another case then was um, Lanku v. Brunetti, and this was a case about the word um, F-U-C-T, fucked, and this was, um, again, refused initially, but um, the courts found that it was acceptable. So um, it's long been the case in Europe that um, offensive trademarks were shot down at the registration process. Um, it was considered one of the absolute grounds for refusal, and controversial marks were generally just, just refused. Um, there's been a recent case though. So this case involved a trademark um, in Germany. So this, so this case involved um, a trademark application from a German applicant, and it was for Fuck You Gota. Now this um, trademark is the title of a movie in German, which is about the difficulties of learning the German language. And so many um, learn, and so many students of the German language might be familiar with the Goethe Institute and also the um, German author Goethe. In the Fuck You Goethe case, the court essentially said that the mark wasn't that offensive after all, and so that it didn't meet the threshold. And I think that's a very different situation from the US, where the test itself has essentially been abolished outright. You know, so there's still a line in Europe which you, um, if you cross, your trademark will be refused registration. Now, as ever, we're not quite sure where that line is exactly. Um, but even if anyone's in any doubt, they could try to register, you know, fuck the French or fuck the police and see how far they get with that. And probably wouldn't be very far at all, you know. Um, you mentioned, Zach, earlier that the marketplace um, may be able to regulate trademarks. And in the Fuck You Goethe case, there was a lot of weight given to the fact that many people had, you know, seen the movie and enjoyed the movie. So that then leaves us with a very difficult question of whose moral compass do we use to measure morality? And I think that's one of the problems we have. And um, we've been using a one-size-fits-all kind of approach. Mm -hmm. And in, in Colin, in your thesis, uh, thesis, I note that you have proposed a classification of those offensive marks. Can you elaborate a bit? Yeah, so the difficulty with the one-size-fits-all approach is that we're bunching a whole different kind of offensive terms into the one, you know, test and trying to decide where we draw the line. Um, for my research, what I did was I looked at different categories of offensive term and then considered them separately. And I think when you do that, it's easier to get um, answers to some of the, the tricky questions. Um, like the one of the difficult questions, apart from, you know, where the line is, is whose morality do you use? And I think that's going to vary with the kind of offensive term. Um, so I figured there were maybe like five broad categories of different terms. 
And then depending on the type of offensive term, the threshold might be different and the relevant section of the public that you would best use to measure that would also be different. So what would be the different types of the different kinds? Well, I guess the first group of words would be those associated with illegal activity. So um, lots of trademarks to do with drugs, for example, illegal drug use have been refused registration. And typically what's legal and what's not legal is very easy to identify. It's not really subjective, you know, it's it's probably the easiest one that you can um, try to figure out. Um, trademarks associated with the mafia have run into difficulty, although some have been allowed, although some have been allowed and, and some haven't. When, when, you, when you say mafia, do you mean uh, having to do with a particular family name or um, do you mean just, just actual mafia, M-A-F-I-A? M-A-F-I-A or words associated with that like um, Costa Nostra, for example. Okay, okay. But like I said, um, what's illegal and what's not legal is generally easy enough to define. So it's it's not a it's not a hard test in these scenarios. So the second group of words then would be, I guess, what we're more used to would be like swear words or, or vulgar words. So like fuck is the most obvious example, and most of these words have you know, like sexual connotations. And then here we run into the difficult question of whose sensibilities should we be using for these kinds of words. So like older people may be, you know, more sensitive than, say, college students. And really here, neither the most sensitive person nor the least sensitive person is a good choice here. So then you run into the very difficult question of like the average person. Um, but of course, this this average person, you know, the, the man on the clap on omnibus in the UK is someone who comes up very often in trademark law. And um, we spend a lot of time thinking about the... Um, mythical, typical consumer. Um, a good test here is words that, you know, can be said on TV before a certain time. And often um, regulators, you know, provide lists to broadcasters of like, you know, these are words you cannot say, you know, until after, you know, 10 p.m. or something. Um, but we're talking here about your, you know, your regular swear words. Um, they're different, of course, in every language. Um, some things that have run into difficulty, um, Dick and Fanny, as a trademark, came um, had some difficulty um, being registered as an EUTM. Um, Big Black Dick was refused registration. That, um, I think, is offensive in a, in a number of different ways. Um, variations of the word fuck, um, there are many of those, and they've been refused registration. Even even fuck cancer was refused registration. Yeah, I can actually tell you that um, there's <laughs> when you when just going back to fuck. There's actually 522 permutations of the word fuck. <laughs> so there's a there's a lot of different ways to put it out there. And can you can you see in your tool where how many were like where how many were applied using the word fuck and refused, for example? I mean, that would be an interesting statistic. Um, so of valid marks. So they're either live or pending. Uh, I'm using Eximatch, by the way. Uh, we have over, uh, we have 338 trademarks filed. Um, in the EU, uh, only six in the EU IPO. Uh, in in the, the region of the EU, including the uh, national registries, you're looking at about 240 trademarks. Um, one of these being uh, fuck taxes, um, fuck love, fuck winter, 
Um, and sure enough, there is a valid registration for fuck cancer uh, in the Swedish PTO. There you go. And um, so one could argue there that Swedes are less sensitive to swear words than the average European. Um, that's something that we could probably think is a, is a plausible um, argument. Sometimes applicants come up with, you know, bizarre entomologies, you know, um, to try and explain away what they're doing. Um, so fucking hell was allowed to be registered. And the applicant claims there this was actually named for um, fucking, which is a town in Austria, um, which I, as I understand routinely gets its, its sign stolen. And hell is a type of beer. So they were claiming that... Um, this is a trademark based on beer from this particular town in Austria. Yeah, but but as far as I know, the Board of Appeal accepted that claim, right? Yes, they did, which I think was um, was uh, was an error, perhaps, on their part. So another category of mark then might be sacred symbols, you know, and there are certain things that groups of people in a society hold in very high esteem. So Muslims, for example, believe that um, the Prophet and the Prophet's name should be treated with respect. And any trademark that disrespects him would be offensive. Um, now, this is an interesting one then, because, of course, um, who's the average person that you should ask in this scenario? Is this mark offensive or not? I mean, should it be the average European or should it be the average Muslim that you would use to apply this test? So this is an example of what happens when you break the type of offensive term into different categories. You know, the, the person that you would use to evaluate the offensiveness of the mark um, changes from category to category. Um, some symbols might, um, you know, be important, but they're not sacred um, in a religious way. They're a secular symbol. Ataturk, um, for example, is um, held in very high esteem by people from Turkey, and a trademark that um, used his name was was refused. Um, so sullying something that's sacred to people by commercializing it, the fact that you're trying to use it at all as a trademark might be considered offensive. Um, there is a trademark refused. Um, so for example, Mecca was refused registration in Australia way back in 1955. And back then, the number of Muslims in Australia was probably very small. Um, but that just goes to show how um, people have been thinking about this issue for a long time. Trademarks that have been refused in this category, for, so trademarks in this category that have been refused um, include Jesus genes, for example. It's easy to see how some people might take offense of that and others, you know, might not. Um, in opposition, someone claimed that Buddha bar should not be registered because it was offensive, but um, nobody bought that argument. I take it you mean kind of like Jesus genes versus Buddha bar. Yeah, or even like um, if so, if so, if a trademark um, was flying fairly close to the wind in terms of being offensive to Muslims. Um, you shouldn't ask the Irish guy who's not a Muslim. You shouldn't use the sensibilities of non-Muslims or the average European to figure out whether it crosses the line or not. You should restrict your analysis to the people who hold that symbol sacred. Now, yet another category of sign then um, 
that some people find offensive are signs that are associated with oppressive regimes. The most obvious um, example, of course, is the Third Reich and the swastika symbol. So um, the swastika represents the Third Reich and any trademark that incorporates that would not be registered. So for some people in Eastern Europe, like the hammer and sickle is as offensive as the swastika might be elsewhere. Um, so signs associated with the communist era can be very offensive to those people. So for example, ZOMO was rejected because it's an acronym for an infamous paramilitary force in Poland. Um, now, if you're not a scholar of now, if you are not familiar with Polish history, you might attempt to register ZOMO for something and be shocked to learn that it has connotations. Similarly, PSRS um, is the Latvian acronym for USSR. And so that's been refuted. And then the final kind of offensive mark is probably the one that's most controversial and the one that's most talked about at the moment. And that's the kind of trademark that's disparaging to a group of people. So the N-word is so offensive that many English speakers can't even say it out loud, actually, even when they're talking about it. Uh, the Washington Redskins is a good example of this. This is a trademark that's disparaging to a group of people. And of course, the interesting question here then is whose sensitivities are relevant? Um, uh, I also read a study on that, like defining the boundaries of Scandalous trademarks. It was written by Sarah Hinchlips or... And there it says the term Scandalous and disparaging is not not clear it, uh, in, in Lanham Act also. Like they are both regulated under Section 2A and, and like it, it's, it's not that much clear whether the mark at the issue is being refused, for example, due to the Scandalous or, or disparaging or both. And courts, time to time, again, intermingle these terms, just like confusing their intended scope. So I think it is also um, not a little bit blurred definitions in US too. Mm -hmm. And this is further complicated then by some terms which have been so-called rehabilitated. So, I mean, queer was once an offensive term that's now been adopted by groups of people who are happy to identify as queer. Um, there was a trademark, Dykes on Bikes, which was initially re um, refused, but the group that wanted to use it claimed that, you know, they had rehabilitated the term. One of the issues, of course, is like the swear words and the sexual words, um, there may be terms that um, you're unaware of as, as a trademark applicant. Um, the most, I guess, famous case um, in this category of trademark was a term, Packy. So a German firm, Packy Logistics, uh, wanted to register the trademark Packy, P-A-K-I. But it turned out that this is an offensive term used in the UK and in Ireland to some extent for people from the Indian subcontinent. So this is a very offensive word in the UK. And so that's part of the problem um, with there being so many languages in the EU and so many um, hurdles to fall on. One problem, though, um, that many people have encountered is that the English word curve, C-U-R-V-E, um, in its written form, appears to be whores to Romanians. And so many trademarks that incorporated the word curve have been refused. Nokia have a smartphone called Lumia. And um, now in, in a very, I've only had, it, 
well, while our platform does pick up on it as a vulgar word, meaning as Lumia, I think it's in, in some place in Argentina, means whore. It actually means, um, I think it has something to do with uh, the prostitutes would light a, uh, have a light outside. So Lumia, something to do with light, but, you know, very colloquial. And I, I wonder how much that gets put into play here or slang, you know, like De Puta Madre is kind of a perfect example of where something can be good. Um, I'm sure in Ireland you could have a lot that, you know, <laughs> you could go down that are in the English language considered to be vulgar, but at the same time, you know, uh, have a, some kind of pos positive connotation. Yeah, um, as with any area of trademark law, it's going to be the perceptions of, of the public. So a word in trademark law has no meaning apart from what people perceive it to be, you know. So, um, you know, if you found something in a dictionary um, from 200 years ago and it was a word that no one understood anymore to have that meaning, um, it simply wouldn't be a problem. Um, it's, it's what the, the public perceives um, will be the test. Yeah, like the perception of a reasonable person with average treasure hold of tolerance, I guess. Yeah, um, I was just wondering too, like going back to mafia, um, you know, how... how Mafia trademarks are treated in this regard. I mean, I I, I looked in in Eximatch just to to get an idea of how many were out there uh, trademarks, including Mafia, that are you know like I said either live in status, nothing that's invalid uh, or rejected. And you know you've got you've got roughly fifteen hundred trademarks um, that use the word Mafia. Um, when we look at the analysis of that as well, we can actually even see like what are the main products that these are being filed under. Um, almost everything is in class twenty five. Um, footwear, shirts, clothing, vest tops, headwear, hats, t-shirts, jackets, trousers. Um, but then when you look at the owners and representation, one of the major ones would be in class 41 as entertainment because uh, it's Take-Two uh, take Interactive Software as they own a major video game franchise with the, with the same name, Mafia. Uh, yeah, so the Mafia has been romanticized in popular culture, you know. Um, one good example here is a Spanish restaurant chain, um, La Mafia, that had 1930s kind of mafia-themed restaurants. You know, I've, I've been to one, the waiters kind of dressed up in a particular way. And this restaurant chain was and is doing quite well in Spain. And the trademark was registered in 2008. But sometime after the government of Italy um, took offence to this and sought to have the trademark revoked and it was indeed cancelled many years later, um, I think in 2016, um, having been used for some time, um, it was cancelled. So depending on the type of the mark, the goods and services to which it will be applied can be reduced or increased the offence, Yes, yeah, so right? the evaluation can be made according to the goods and services, correct? So it's possible that, um, for example, the goods might be marketed through specialized channels and so wouldn't be available to the general public. So in that scenario, then, the average member of the general public isn't the persons whose sensitivities you would use. So a good example of this is a trademark, um, which was Screw You. So initially, this was going to be refused. And I, as an English speaker, I would say this is probably at the lower end, maybe at the, the threshold. Um, 
but it was refused on the grounds that um, it's directed at someone, you know, and that most English speakers, if someone said this to them, they would take offence. But it turned out that it was refused for goods that were on sale or that might be on sale generally. But some of the goods that the applicant had applied for were very specialised and they were the kind of goods that would only be sold in sex shops. And so it was allowed to proceed to registration for those goods because the argument was successfully made that, well, the kind of person who is in a sex shop buying the products in there would have a higher threshold of offence and wouldn't be upset by screw you. Whereas um, screw you being used for t-shirts or shoes or general um, products would be offensive. So that's one way in which um, if the goods are sold in specialised channels, the um, threshold might be different. But also depending then on the goods and services can make something more or less offensive. And, and looking back to this EU perspective, like it is interesting to note that unlike most national trademark offices, the EU IPO also have to deal with many European languages. In that sense, I feel that they have a harder task like compared to US. What do you think, Colin? Well, I think it's the trademark applicants have the difficult task because the EU IPO is staffed with staff from all over the EU. And as with any trademark application, um, it may be distinct, maybe non-distinctive or descriptive in in one of the EU languages. Um, so, um, in many respects, the they're used to dealing with the many different languages of the EU. But as a trademark attorney or as an applicant, you're not going to know all of the languages of the EU. And even if you have access to dictionaries, you know you can check for distinctive terms. And you can check for descriptive terms. But many dictionaries will not um, have a full list of all the swear words in a particular language. And of course, some of the swear words are only swear words in context. They may be perfectly normal words otherwise. So the context can perhaps be informed by the goods and services. Um, and the same mark might be considered fine for some goods and, and not for others. Yep. Just uh, don't do your research on Urban Dictionary. You can pretty much type anything into that and get, <laughs> get an example. Um, yeah. So uh, just want to thank you again, Colin. Any final thoughts before we end today? Yeah. I mean, it can be frustrating for applicants, um, but it's important to remember that a trademark right is a property right and no property right is absolute. Like there is a telephone pole right in my backyard that I don't like. But um, we very often um, get situations where the state constrains property rights um, in order to achieve some common good. And I think it's important to see the bar on immoral trademarks in Europe in that context. Gochen, any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I just would like to mention one other work referring to the brief for professors Barden Beppe and Jenny Former as an amical courier uh, supporting the respons respondent in Lancet case. And they have also this study in moral or scandalous mark and empirical analyst. And, and it shows that uh, USPTO's enforcement of immoral or scandalous marks 
uh, provisions is systematically inconsistent and arbitrary. And according to the work, they say PTO has done this repeatedly, for example, like given different treatment to the same or nearly same trademarks. For example, PTO registered F. U2 for apparel, but two years later refused to register register FU for apparel because it was both immoral and confusingly similar to the registered mark FU2. So they also aware of the previous trademark. I, I highly encourage to read that study as it gives really interesting examples and conclude as the systematic inconsistency and arbitrariness of USPTO enforcement of the moral or scandalous marks provisions suggests that the provision violates this First Amendment's free speech clause, actually. Yeah, I think the argument that the bar on immoral trademarks isn't applied uniformly and isn't applied consistently is probably a fair one. And that leads to lots of frustration from applicants because they can see um, similarly offensive trademarks actually registered. So that's it for today. I just want to thank everybody for listening. And I'd also like to say thanks to Colin Manning, our special guest. Colin is a lecturer at Cork Institute of Technology in Ireland and also a practicing European trademark attorney. We will have a link to his website in the description of this episode. Thanks again, everybody. If you would like to know more about our AI platform search and watch tools built by trademark experts for trademark experts, please check out trademarknow.com. We are always looking for guest contributors to our show too. If you'd like to suggest a trademark topic and take part in our discussions, please share your IP ideas with us by email to podcast at trademarknow.com. And if you like what you've heard, please share the news with your fellow trademark pros with the hashtag, hashtag talkinmarks. That's talkin, T-A-L-K-I-N, Marks, M-A-R-K-S. Hashtag Talking Works. Take care until the next time.